Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our series on Unto Us, our Christmas series of 2019. Uh, and I'd like to start out by showing you a couple pictures that will be self-explanatory. I really shouldn't have to say anything about these pictures. Let's go with the first one. See? No, no, it gets better. Just relax. How about the second one? Is that the second one? Okay, great. How about the third one? Notice it now? And how about the fourth one? Oh, I remember, uh, I think it was for a couple of our kids, going to the doctor, getting that ultrasound done. Not me getting the ultrasound, <laughs> my wife getting the ultrasound done. And I remember the ultrasound technician uh, showing us, not that picture, but the other pictures going, Oh, it's a boy, it's a girl, here's the head, here's the heart. And I'm thinking, where in the world are they coming up with that? And I looked at them, and I saw the videos, and I'm like, I got no clue how you think that that's a spine, but it looks like a blob. That's all it looked like to me. And obviously, at the end of that nine-month period, you get something incredibly beautiful that you hold and cherish and nourish. But every time that that experience happened with us, there was a little part inside of me that when you're expecting a new child, there are many emotions, many questions, many hopes, many dreams, and sometimes some fear that goes along with it. Because you can't tell right away how their life is going to turn out. You see those little pictures? You don't know. There are so many questions. There are so many weights put upon your shoulder that you wonder to yourself questions like this. Who will my baby look like? If they're a boy, I hope they look a little bit more like me than they do my wife. If they're a girl, I hope they look like my wife and not like me. But you don't know in those pictures when the baby is first conceived and you have those first little ultrasound pictures, you don't know what the baby's going to look like. You don't know what talents they're going to have, what gifts, what abilities. You don't know, will they have a better life than me? Isn't that the hope of every parent when they're realizing, oh, I'm expecting to have a child? You have that sense. You have that desire. I hope they have it better than me. I hope they get a better job than me. I hope they're more successful than me. I hope they have a better education than me. I hope they have better opportunities than me. You want better for them. But in that little picture, all you're left with is just an, a picture. You don't know the details of their life. And you often wonder, will they find love? Love that we have as, as parents, one for another. Will they find their true love? You'll ask questions. Will they learn from my mistakes? Or will they do it all on their own? You might have a question Will they be successful, or will they struggle in life? Will they honor God with their life, or will they be far from God, or will they be close to Him? And of course, the question, will they ever, ever, ever move out of the house? Now, I wasn't thinking that when I saw the first picture of my kids, because I just assumed that's naturally what happens. 
not all the time, but that's okay. That's okay. In the end, it's love that conquers all those fears. It's love that conquers all those strange emotions. And it's love that says, Lord, they're in your hands. They are your gift to me, and I am okay with how they turn out because you are the champion in their life. You're the Lord of their life. But who hasn't heard that news you're expecting and you have all those questions? What will happen? What will happen? What will happen? What will happen? By the time you get to the fifth one, you're, you're running on coffee and caffeine. You don't have any questions. You just, okay, whatever. But you're happy. But you're awesomely happy. Because God gave you another child. That's awesome. You just don't have all those questions and fears and wonders anymore. That's all done. So Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7, to get back to our text in our series, Isaiah 7 that we looked at last week showed us that Israel, actually Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, was in the midst of an amazing crisis for God's people. And that God said, I will demonstrate my power by having a virgin conceive a child. And Matthew tells us that that child is Jesus. So they were in a crisis, and the only information that God gave them was basically an ultrasound picture. There's going to be a child. They had no idea what this child would be like. They couldn't see clearly what God was doing. It was just a promise. Now, a very miraculous promise, a virgin will give birth, because that's physically impossible. There has to be a father. There has to be a second person involved. They couldn't tell what the child was going to be like. They couldn't see how that promised child, how that brief picture would actually do something for them. Just as strange as it is for us to look at an ultrasound, if we're not technicians, and not know where the body parts are. So Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem were confused. They said, okay, there's a promise, but I don't see it clearly. I don't understand what that has to do with us, how that picture is going to grow up and help us. How is that even possible? So God's people in Israel's history, all of this was taking, a, taking part about 700 years before the birth of Christ. So this wasn't just a couple months before. It was 700 years before the birth of Christ. They were left with just a picture here. And then later on in the Old Testament, another picture. Then later on in the Old Testament, another picture. And all they were doing was getting these brief little highlights about the life of this newborn child, born of a virgin, and they were asked, believe. Believe that promised first blob of a picture is going to save you. Believe that that blob of a picture is going to redeem you. Believe that they are going to unite you. Believe that they are going to make you right with the Father. Believe that he will radically Live the law on your behalf and save you from your sin. That takes a tremendous amount of faith in God. Because you're given something very hazy, very difficult to imagine. From a picture of an ultrasound to a champion of the faith who would die 
self-sacrificing himself on a cross, and then be raised again, doing it all perfectly without sin. That takes tremendous faith. Well, Isaiah 9 moves us a little bit further into the picture, gives us a better picture than those first few ultrasounds, almost gives us that entire picture of a baby, but actually transfers us way into the future of not just a baby anymore, but someone who is powerful, someone who is able, someone who is tremendously fit to be the redeemer of God's people, to be the champion of God's people, to be the king that King Ahaz was not able to be, to be the king that David wasn't able to be, to be a prophet and a leader that Moses was not able to be. And Isaiah 9 describes this young child so that the faith of the people could be built. The faith of the people could attach themselves to something more than just, don't be a virgin giving forth a child and the child's going to help you. But they're given details on what this child would be like, how he would grow up, what he would accomplish, what his character was, how he would stand in relationship to the entire universe. All of their questions would be answered. What, how, why? And it happens in Isaiah chapter 9. The first five verses of Isaiah chapter 9, and turn there if you're not already there, has a real upbeat, a real upbeat, because in chapter 7, it was a real downbeat. Isaiah chapter 7, it was full of rumors of war. It was full of fear. In fact, we're told that Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom, were shaking like trees in the wind. They were so afraid of what was going to happen to their very little nation surrounded by very powerful armies. Isaiah 9 has a completely different tone. Isaiah chapter 9 in the first few verses says, and this is Isaiah God giving or God's counsel. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. No more gloom for those who are in distress. Jerusalem was in distress. They were fearful of every trumpet. They were fearful of every group that they saw marching towards Jerusalem. They were living in absolute terror about what was going to happen to them. Nevertheless, there will be a time where there is no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee as the nations, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan. So there will be a time that God says, this land of Galilee, this land that you dwell in, is one day going to be a jewel to the rest of the earth. And the rest of the earth is going to have no power over you. The rest of the nations are not going to be over you. But there's going to be a time, you don't have to worry about it, where God is going to establish his kingdom in such force that the world is going to have to take notice of what's happening here. And it's good. It's good for the world. It's good for the nation of Israel. And he says in verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Light is a beautiful thing. Light gives you the ability to see. 
Life gives you the ability to navigate, to welcome one another, to notice one another. Light is a good thing, and this illustration here is not talking about physical light. It's talking about spiritual light. It's talking about the darkness of man's heart and God bringing in light to give beauty and a sense of purpose and a sense of reliance upon the Savior. And that's why Jesus says he is the light of the world. Not talking physically, talking spiritually. He's the one that can look inside of a heart and dissect it. He can look inside of a heart and see everything that we want to keep hidden, he exposes completely. Small, little light shining in the nation of Israel will illuminate the entire world, reveal the entire world for what it is and what God can accomplish in their lives. continues in verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as the people rejoice in the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Jerusalem and Judah were far from rejoicing. They were in terror and fear for their very lives. They knew at any moment the nation surrounding them could capture them and lead them away. This is the opposite of what they were experiencing. And God says, there will be a time where there's no more doom, no more gloom, no more darkness, no more fear, no more dread. And there will be a time where, and he describes it in the words, I'll enlarge the nation. I'll increase your joy. You will rejoice before you. People will rejoice as in the day of a harvest or the warriors dividing up the plunder and spoils. A time of great rejoicing, a national holiday. And the people who were going through this crisis probably felt that this was the last possible thing they'd ever experienced. Happiness, joy, peace, excitement, value. They weren't thinking that. They were living in terror over the crisis that they were facing, whether it was major or minor. They were in terror. How does God help his people who are in terror, who are fearful, who are dreading? He shows them. The promise. The promise of what God can accomplish. And he made them this promise. Your land is going to be a land where everyone looks to. And it will be joyful. Joyful. He continues in verse 4. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor. Now I'm not sure that everyone remembers the days of Midian. None of us were there for it. But Scripture records it for us, and you may know it under a different name of Gideon and his army of 300 men. So in the days when Israel, the entire promised land, was trying to establish itself, they had judges. They didn't have kings, but they had judges. And the judges would try to establish uh, God's religion within the borders and try to drive out the inhabitants that were wicked and evil. And they would find resistance. Sometimes they had great success. But most often they had a lot of failures along the way. And so Midian was one of these individuals who attacked at every opportunity, attacked Israel. They were a mighty army. They had no regard for God. They were wicked and evil in every one of their ways. And 
this little guy, Gideon, kind of was thrust into the limelight as a leader. And he was ill-equipped to be a leader. He was not a warrior. But God put his favor upon Gideon. And Gideon was encouraged by God to rally the troops. And in rallying the troops, he was going to set war against the Midianites. And so Gideon has his camp. He's ready. And God visits him and says, uh, basically, you have too many warriors. I don't know of any army general who ever would think they have too many men fighting for them. But God said, you have too many. And in fact, you have too many because you might actually get the idea that you did this on your own. If you have an overwhelming force, you're going to trust in the overwhelming force. And so he said, we're going to limit your army. And so uh, let anyone go that's kind of scared right now. And so Gideon makes the announcement to the whole Israel army. If any of you are scared, you want to go home, just go ahead. No one will judge you. No one will think ill of you. Just leave. And I don't know, somewhere near three-fourths of his army left. And, and Gideon's having this conversation with God in prayer. And God goes, you know what? I think you still have too many. And he's like, oh, my goodness, three-quarters of my army's already gone. What do you want me to do? Well, th this is how we're going to do it. The people that uh, have everyone go get a drink in the river. You remember the story now? They go down and get a drink, and God says, anyone who kind of lays down on the ground and just drinks out of the river, get rid of. But those that kind of scoop with their hands and bring it to their mouth, those are the people you're going to keep. And he ends up with how many people? 300. 300 people. And God gives them a miraculous victory. And you would think the entire time God would be Get more men, get more men, more encouraging speeches, more victory speeches. Come on, get up there and really encourage and motivate your people. Get more people to volunteer and turn out. God says, no, I want to show the nation of Israel. I want to show you, Gideon. I want to show the nations around you. And I want to show people in Pueblo in 2019 that victory is God's, not man's. It is never man's victory. It is never because of man's power, ability, or wisdom, or strategy. It is always because God gives the victory to his people. Never because of the people, but it's in spite of the people. And so Isaiah reminds Israel of this very fact. For as in the days of Midian's defeat... You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar that crosses their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. All right, God, so you've said that you're going to make Israel into a grand nation that has joy on its borders, that has rejoicing in its cities, that has light and no gloom, no fear. Can you do that? Can you actually do that? And so Isaiah says, remember Midian. Remember how he did it there? And everyone, now they didn't have Sunday schools, but everyone there grew up learning those kind of stories and realized, wow, God has done that. He's done that with very little. He did that with 300 people. Defeated an army 10 times its size, 100 times its size. Maybe God can bring this child to do something miraculous. Maybe he can. Stop the crisis. Maybe he can 
stop my fear. Maybe he can work on my anger. Maybe he can work on my depression. Maybe he can work on my, and you fill in the blank. Because I've seen his power on display before. God's the same. The same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He doesn't change. His power doesn't change. His love for us does not change. It's the same love, the same power, the very same God who gave the promise, who fulfills the promise. It goes on in verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be the fuel for the fire. Whoever this child is, he's going to put an end to war? That's basically what's happening. Everything that the warrior needs, eh, it's just going to be fuel now for the fire. Don't need it. There's no more battle. Victory's won. He's won it. He's done it. Well, when's that going to happen? Spiritually, it happened when he died on the cross. That is Jesus and rose again. That's spiritually when it happened. Physically, it's going to happen when he returns again and he brings every nation under subject to him. We haven't seen that yet. We still have wars. But he says, I'm going to put an end to that one day. And how can I be so confident in that? Because he put an end to the war in my heart. He put an end to the war in your heart. He can put an end to the war of the nations. Then in verse 6 and 7, we're given a bright, shining, clear picture of who this promised virgin birth child would be from chapter 7. Famous words. Verse 6 of chapter 9 of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with the justice and righteousness that from time on and forever, the zeal of Jehovah, Yahweh Almighty, will accomplish this. Let's take a moment and look at that. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. How will all this be accomplished? It starts. It starts with his birth. It starts with that very first picture of promise. There's going to be an infant born by a virgin. How's a child going to accomplish this? Has anyone ever held an infant? Okay. What do they accomplish? They keep you up at night? Not a great accomplishment. What else do they do? They eat, and then they give you it back later. That's what they accomplish. You can't put them to work. Oh, how beautiful that would be. Right away, go, go work. No. They are fragile, aren't they? They are so needy. Absolutely needy. Their very life is dependent upon your care. Your nurturing, your love, your attention. Without it, they die. 
There's a remarkable difference between some of those animals in the animal kingdom and human infants. It is remarkable to see the deer who just gets born, who within like 10, 15 minutes gets up and runs. The baby? Oh, I hope by a year they start walking, or maybe it's 18 months or two. I don't know, but it takes them years. Sometimes I even struggle on tripping. But God has designed that that small little infant is dependent upon you. And God says that small little dependent infant is going to be the one who wins the day. He's going to get rid of the doom. He's going to bring in the light. He's going to get rid of the fear. He's going to end the crisis. He's going to end the war. He's going to establish peace. He's going to establish joy. He's going to win the day. Wow. But it's so like God. God doesn't use his might. He often uses what is frail and simple to rule the day through him, to show his power, to show his might. But it starts with, for unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given. And the first thing we're told is that he's going to be in charge. Wow. The government will be on his shoulders. I mean, he bears the weight of running and ruling not only our hearts, not only the crisis that we're in, but the entire universe that we're part of. There's not a part of this universe that does not declare Jesus is sovereign. Not an inch is outside of his control. Not an atom that is outside of his design. Nothing. He controls and sovereignly rules over all. This little child? Yes. This little child, born of a virgin, that very first picture we see, is going to end up being king of kings and lord of lords. Over every king, over every lord, over every power, over every government, over every principality, over anything that has authority, he is number one. Newsflash, you're not number one. He is. I'm not number one. He is. The Broncos are not number one. In full disclosure, neither are the Bears. But he is number one. He is ruler and reigner over the entire universe. Not only that, but he will be called some really incredible special names. The first name that he is called, and this is clear in the Hebrew and the English translations, they make a mess of it. Remember when the word was given, both in Hebrew and Greek in the New Testament, there was no punctuation. Everything was defined by the part of speech. And the very first title that Jesus has is the word wonderful, which is a noun, not an adjective. It's not wonderful counselor. It's wonderful, comma, counselor, comma. Two different names. But he's called first and foremost wonderful. What an amazing name. What an amazing Perfect description of Jesus. Instead of using the word wonderful, we might use the word he's awesome. 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 Just wow. It's sort of like the movie Wonderful Life, which is a beautiful Christmas story type of movie, but it's about all of life. 
while the focus is not on Jesus and God, the message is really true. That there are just some days where everything just comes together and it is a wonderful day. Jesus is that all the time. Everything comes together in him in perfection. He is wonderful. He's then described as a counselor, as one who gives guidance, as one who directs our lives. He's designed to be that. He wants to be that with us. He wants to give us his counsel. He wants to give us his guidance. He wants us to read and listen and follow him. He's designed, he's made for that. And when we try to tackle things on our own, when we think we need to do it ourselves, when we think, hey, we need the advice of others, Jesus is sitting there going, why are you not coming to me? Why are you not praying to me? Why are you not asking me what to do, how to feel, how to act, how to treat someone? I am your guidance. I am your counselor. He's also described as a mighty God. Not just God, but he has that adjective. He's a mighty God. See, because in the mind of many of the Israelites at this time, in the mind especially in the days of writing of Isaiah chapter 9, everyone believed there were all these little gods all around. Every hill had a god, every valley had a god, every river had a god. You take a piece of wood and go, okay, God. And, and our God is not like that. It's not a common word to throw around. He's the mighty God. Mighty, which means he's able to do something. That idol you made out of wood or stone, it can't do anything. It can't speak. It can't move. It can't create. It can't think. It's dead. But not our God. He's the mighty God. And he continues and says, not only is he wonderful, not only is he a guide and a counselor, not only is he a mighty God, but this little child, born of a promise, a small little picture that we've had, is the everlasting Father. You may have had a very rough experience with your father. Don't paint the picture of God as father thinking about your father then. Okay, take that way out of your mind. Because God the father is not like any earthly father. God the father does not yell. He does not get angry. He's not spiteful. He's not lazy. He's not a drunk. He's not abusive. He's not absent. He's the everlasting Father. Meaning that he is for you and for all of God's people forever and ever and ever and ever. The most loving, patient, kind, generous, disciplined Father that has ever been. He's perfect in how he treats his children. And that relationship that he has with us never stops. See, the relationship that we have with earthly fathers stopped. We can stop it. We can break off all communication. They can stop it. And of course, death stops it. But not with God. He's an everlasting father to us. You can take a sigh of relief. You can let your guard down and you can say, someone is watching over me. I'm going to make it through the day. I can make it through this crisis, whether major or minor. It's not that I got it. 
that he's got room. That's the passion, the emotion, the thinking that Isaiah is trying to portray. It's not just a blob on the screen of a promise. It's the fullness of God protecting you. And then lastly, he's described as the Prince of Peace. He's a sovereign. He's royalty in regards to peace. See, God has not only established the ability to have peace between one another, between people. We can have an argument, we can have a disagreement, someone can sin against someone, and, but we can establish peace. God can lead us to reconciliation. But he also is a prince of peace when it comes to our relationship with him, which is far more broken than our relationship with each other. Jesus establishes peace between us and God. How does he do that? How does he establish it? First of all, you may think, I never knew there was a war going on. Well, Scripture describes it as a war. In fact, Scripture describes us without Jesus as enemies of God. Enemies. There's a war going on. Yeah, there's a war of who's number one. God says, look, I need you. I'm number one. I'm in charge. And we, with our great ability of arrogance, go, no. I'm number one, so I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to think the way I want to think. I'm going to treat people the way I want to treat them. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm number one. That was the devil's fall. He wanted to be like God. Well, so did Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. God says, no. And the war started. How does peace come to that war between an eternal God and a finite person? It takes an eternal God to make peace. And so Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, the one who is the one who would establish peace between God and man. And he didn't simply have to negotiate terms, because the only term God the Father would accept is blood. A pure sacrifice, an innocent sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice. And he gave us lots of signs of that in the Old Testament. It would be like this and this and this and this until the fullness came and gave his life a ransom for many. For us. And then we're told in verse 7 of this beautiful ending. Maybe ending. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. It's going to be far reaching. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord God Almighty, Jehovah Yahweh, will accomplish this. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to organize it. You don't have to volunteer for it. You're not asked to contribute a thing. God says, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to bring this promised child into the world, and he is going to be everything to you. He is going to vanquish every enemy, every fear, every crisis. He and he alone is going to accomplish it. Now, there is a beautiful song that takes those ending verses and puts it into, well, it's a song. And I'd like to play that for you. Not me personally. It's going to be up on the screen. 
and you're going to recognize it right away. That is who is in your life this very moment, overcoming every crisis you can imagine, every crisis your mind runs to, every problem your heart is engulfed in. That is who the promise is. He's wonderful. He's your counselor. He's the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So when you face a crisis, when you face something you feel you can't handle, he's there and says, talk to me. I've been given to you for this purpose, to make you right with the Father and to make you right with one another and to put your heart at peace, to remove the gloom and fear, to remove the darkness and to establish a kingdom of light in your very heart. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, wow, how you can just wonderfully encourage us and mightily reveal to us the greatness of your Son. Father, may we be a people who rush quickly to your feet quickly to your side, 
quickly to embrace your comfort and your guidance, and sometimes even your correction, that we might be a people that can proclaim to those around us. You may view Jesus as a baby and an infant in a manger, but he is also sovereign, Lord, King, God Almighty, over all of heaven and of all of earth and even my own heart. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said,